treat this morning. We, we uh, come to the seventh trumpet, which is a passage that uh, is not uh, as weird or as uh, confusing as many of the other passages that we've come to in the book of Revelation and is actually quite glorious. Um, it's one of a series of preliminary grand finales in the book of Revelation. The book of Revelation, you know, ends with chapter 21 and 22, which are th this great grand finale. But that's just the last grand finale, the final finale, if you will. But before that, we have a number of other times where the, uh, the symphony of Revelation swells to a certain preliminary grand finale. And today is one of those. We've talked about how the book of Revelation is really cyclical. And it, it keeps going over the same story, but giving us different information, sort of like the four Gospels. And, uh, and so today we, we saw this happen with the seven seals, the opening of the seven seals. And now we're coming to the end of the blowing of the seven trumpets. Now remember the seventh seal, when that was opened, there was a half hour of silence in heaven. In contrast to that, as the seventh trumpet is blown, far from silence in heaven, we hear loud voices. Let's read our passage this morning. Revelation 11, 14 to 19. The second woe has passed. Behold, the third woe is soon to come. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the twenty-four elders who sit on their thrones before God fell on their faces and worshipped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged and for rewarding your saints, the prophets and saints, I'm sorry, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth. Then God's temple in heaven was opened, and the ark of his covenant was seen within his temple. There were flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail. Now when we read this passage, the first question that just seems to shout from the page, at least to me, is what is so terrible about the seventh trumpet? You remember that back in 
chapter 8, verse 13, after the fourth trumpet, John says, I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead. Woe, woe to those who dwell on the earth at the blasts of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. So this angel, having, you know, comes after the first four trumpets, which were very severe and very traumatic. And he says, the next three are going to be even worse. You know, you've had it, you've seen these bad trumpets, but now the volume's being turned up. And now you have trumpets that are worse than bad. They're very bad, no good, terrible, horrible. And then we read trumpet number five. And it's, yes, it is worse. We can't believe it. And then we read trumpet number six, and that's terrible too. And then we come to trumpet number seven. It's like, you'd think that this was going to be the worst of all, but it's like, this one, you know, there's no bloodshed. There's no uh, uh, torment. There's no slaughter. There's no oppression. There's no famine. There's no terror. You know, what's so bad about the seventh trumpet? It actually seems more mild and much more happy than the others. So much so that it gets inserted, at least verse 15 of it, gets inserted into one of humanity's favorite songs. The Hallelujah Chorus. So what's so scary about the seventh trumpet? It doesn't sound like a woe, if you will. Well, the blowing of the seventh trumpet yields two results. The first is verse 15. Then the seventh angel blew his trumpet and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdom of this world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ and he shall reign forever and ever. That the kingdom of the, this world is singular and not plural. It's not the kingdoms of the world have become the kingdom of our Christ, but the kingdom of the world. The King James actually has it in the plural, even though it's pretty clear. To, and there are some texts that have it in the plural in the Greek, but it's all the evidence is on the side of it being singular. So why is it singular? Well, this verse is not talking about the various nations of the earth. It's talking about the kingdom of the world. You see, the kingdom of God is not the only kingdom the Bible talks about. There's another kingdom, a kingdom set against the kingdom of God. Paul refers to this other kingdom in Colossians 1.13. He says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of His beloved Son. This other kingdom, this domain of darkness, is ruled over by Satan himself, who Jesus called the ruler of this world in John 12, 31. This is the kingdom to which 
all of us belonged before we came to Christ. It is also the kingdom to which all non-believers belong to this day. You once walked following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, Paul says in Ephesians 2.2. 2. This is the kingdom which gives non-believers their sense of security, their place of identity. It is where their confidence lies. It is their support system and their source of hope. How could billions of people be wrong? But on that day when the seventh trumpet sounds, the kingdom of the world will be taken over by the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he shall reign forever and ever. And every time people buy tickets to hear Handel's Messiah and stand up when the, for the singing of the Hallelujah Chorus, many of them in that audience are actually exulting in music which celebrates their own demise, ironically. The second thing that happens in the seventh trumpet is in verse 16 to 18. And this, this sentence, this has so many clauses that it's a little bit difficult to keep up with. So I'll try to simplify it after I read it. The 24 elders who sit on the throne sit on their thrones before God, fell on their faces and worshiped God, saying, We give thanks to you, Lord God Almighty, who is and who was, for you have taken your great power and begun to reign. The nations raged, but your wrath came, and the time for the dead to be judged, and for rewarding your servants, the prophets and saints, and those who fear your name, both great and small, and for destroying the destroyers of the earth." So, the 24, remember, we were introduced to them in Revelation 4.4. They give thanks to God that he's taken his mighty power and has begun to reign. And then, it goes back to Psalm 2. To make a, and it makes a very long story, very short. You remember Psalm 2. It says, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, and so forth. Well, Revelation 11:18 picks up on this story and takes it further. The nations raged, but your wrath came. And several other things came as well. A time for the dead to be judged, presumably referring to those non-believers who have already died without Christ and then the time for rewarding your servants the prophets and the saints and those who fear your name both small and great and a third thing and the time for destroying the destroyers of the earth presumably the living non-believers at the time of his appearing so you see, the seventh trumpet far surpasses the earlier trumpets in severity. And that's why the, the, uh, the eagle's word is accurate. The first four trumpets 
talked about normal earthly troubles and difficulties, though intense and severe, in this present age. And then the fifth and the sixth trumpets are talking about the intense suffering that will be experienced right before the coming of Christ. But the seventh trumpet is talking about the final and eternal judgment. This is not scary to the redeemed, but it sure is to the rest of mankind. The very one they have resisted all their lives, the very one they fought against with every bone in their bodies, the one they desperately tried to avoid and to forget about, the one they mocked and spat upon and ridiculed and crucified, this one is now seated on the throne as indisputable ruler and judge. And he knows all their secrets and he is not happy. And as the curtain closes on this description of the seventh trumpet, we get a little glimpse of what's happening on stage as the curtain closes in verse 19. We're told that God's temple opens up in heaven and the Ark of the Covenant is there. On which, of course, was the mercy seat where the blood of the covenant was sprinkled, pointing to the atoning work of Christ upon the cross. But we also get a glimpse of the coming wrath of God and the judging of the dead and the destroying of the destroyers of the earth. For just as the curtain is closing, we read, there were flashes of lightnings, rumblings, peals of thunder, an earthquake, and heavy hail, and then the curtain is closed. Now, even though this is severe and scary, truth for non-believers, it's actually wonderful news for those who fear the Lord. When the seventh seal is first opened and there's silence in heaven for a half an hour, and the whole creation stands in awe at the glorious appearing of the Son of God, that doesn't last long apparently. And the next time we're given a glimpse into that spectacular day here in Revelation 11, 15 to 19, we hear loud voices declaring that the kingdom of the Lord has become the kingdom, I'm sorry, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. And this is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament promised. Remember, in Psalm 2, which we already read a part of, God declared to, his, to the Messiah, I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. It's the same thing Nebuchadnezzar saw in his vision and was explained by Daniel in Daniel 2.44. In the days of those kings... The God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break in pieces all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever. 
It's the same thing Daniel later foresaw in his night visions. In chapter 7, Behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall soon, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And now the heavenly voices proclaim that the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ has come because the kingdoms, the kingdom of this world has been defeated and judged. And God takes back to himself the authority he had permitted Satan temporarily to exercise over the world. And this is the moment we've all been waiting for. It was promised in the Old Testament. It was initiated by the coming of the King Jesus. When John the Baptist proclaimed, The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. Mark 1.15 This is what Jesus has been leading to in all of his talk about entering into his kingdom and about being shut out of his kingdom. And now, in the seventh trumpet, John sees it happening. He sees the day when Christ's rule will be unopposed and unquestioned, when the head that once was crowned with thorns is crowned with all authority. Did you notice in verse 17, one of the cool things about this passage, in verse 17, God is referred to as Lord God Almighty, who is and who was. Now, if you've been reading the book of Revelation, you notice that in chapter 1, verse 4, and chapter 1, verse 14, and chapter 4, or 8, I mean, chapter 1, verse 4, 1, 8, and in chapter 4, verse 8, God is referred to as he who is, who was, who is, and who is to come. But suddenly, he's not called the God who was, is, and is to come, but the God who is and who was. And it cuts out the God who is to come. Why? Because this is his coming. He's come. This is the vision of his coming. He's no longer the God who is to come because he's the God who has come. Ever since the Garden of Eden... We have lived under this great clash of history. This great tension between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. It was initiated right after the fall of Adam and Eve in Genesis 3.15 when God said to Satan, I will put enmity between you and the woman, between your seed and her seed, or your offspring and her offspring. And down through history, this great conflict has played out in the context of human community and in the context of the human heart. And we've seen in the book of Revelation, and we'll continue to see, that at the end of history, it looks like the kingdom of this world will have won. But then dramatically... 
Christ will come and end the conflict once and for all with a great turnaround, a great comeback. One day the wicked are rejoicing over the death of the righteous. That's what we talked about last week. And the next day everything has been turned on its head. The agony of the wicked will be intensified by the fact that they will be pulled down right when it appears that they have climbed their way to the top and have finally won the victory. And what a day of celebration it will be when the Lord will rule over everything. We live in a world for now, though, that opposes God. The nations rage, the peoples plot in vain. The kings of the earth set themselves against the Lord and against his Messiah. They're constantly saying, let us burst their bonds and throw their cords off from us. But he who sits in the heavens laughs. Then he speaks to them in his wrath and terrifies them in his fury, saying, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. He is my son, and I will make the nations his heritage, and the ends of the earth his possession. He will break them with a rod of iron, and dash them in pieces like a potter's vessel. Now therefore, O kings, be warned. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the Son, lest he be angry, and you perish, for his wrath is quickly kindled. But blessed are all who take refuge in him. That's a mild abridgment, a little bit of a rewording of Psalm 2, but very uh, faithful to the meaning of it. Now, you might ask, well, isn't the Lord reigning already? Well, yes, he is. But on the day when Christ returns, we're told in verse 17 that he will take his great power and begin to reign. He's always had the power. And secretly, he reigns over all. But in this age that we live in, he often hides, he cloaks, he veils his power. I love the way Isaiah 52.10 says it. Talking about the coming of Christ, it says, The Lord has bared his holy arm before the eyes of all nations, and all the ends of the earth shall see his salvation. So, you know, the muscle was there, the mighty arm was there, but it was cloaked. He had on a baggy coat or something. But then, you know, when you bare your arm, implies that it's been covered, and you pull it out for all to see. Now, God doesn't go around in a muscle shirt showing off his great power. But every once in a while, the time comes when God bears his holy arm and displays his great might. And that's what 11.17 is talking about. On the last day that he takes out his great power and begins to reign. 
But even when you can't see God's muscles, it doesn't mean that you can't know that they're there. We know of many occasions when he has bared them. So just like if you see a guy at the gym working out and he's got muscles on top of his muscles and then he puts on his winter coat and goes out and you see him in the parking lot, you know that those muscles are still in there even though you can't see them. So it is with the Lord. He's got the power. He's got the muscle. But he hides it often. So we live in this rather strange reality where the kingdom has come, but it hasn't come yet completely. Where God has glorified himself, but he hasn't made it obvious to everyone. The king has come, but we still pray, thy kingdom come. We know the victory, but we don't yet see the victory. We're pessimistic about the world, and yet we're very optimistic about the future. We're triumphant, yet we look forward to that day when our sense of triumph is no longer held back by the pains and confusions of this life. We look forward to the day when every difficulty will be clearly seen as a blessing. For the pain of those difficulties will be gone and the purpose and the benefit of them will be evident. How sweet that will be. And now before I close, I'd like to mention two, in conclusion, two ways that this truth relates especially to Americans. First of all, the issue of this world is not this nation over against that nation. No, the issue of this world involves only two kingdoms. The kingdom of this world and the kingdom of our Lord. The domain of darkness and the kingdom of God and his beloved son. In other words, we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, authorities, and cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Ephesians 6.12 And then one more thing. I think it's harder for many Americans to put their hope in the return of Christ than it is for many other believers around the world. Those who live under intense persecution can grasp the power and the glory of this perhaps more easily than we can. Sometimes we have to work hard just to try to convince ourselves that heaven is going to be much better than life on earth. Look at, do a survey of Christian songs written and uh, you find that Songs written by people who are either poor or living under distress, they are much more heaven-oriented than the songs written by people who are comfortable and rich. Now, we think of ourselves as privileged in America, and so we are, but we are also being tested. 
American Christians, like most of us, have been given a severe test, I would say, by the Lord. We may not be experiencing the test of severe persecution, but God has given us the test of affluence and comfort. And God wants to prove to the world and to the heavenly powers that our faith is genuine, just as he wanted to prove that Job's faith was genuine. Remember that Job was rich. He had possessions. He had good health. He had good family situation. He was pretty well set up. But God suggested that it was because he was so outwardly blessed that he was faithful. And the fact is, there are many who appear to be faithful, but really it's just because they are so outwardly blessed. As Jesus said, it's hard for the rich to enter the kingdom. They have so many distractions, so many other securities. The worries and cares of this life can so easily squeeze the life out of them. The Bible says to love God with our whole heart, soul, mind, and strength. But for the rich, there are so many other things to love. We have such nice houses, such good tools, such beautiful parks, such delicious food, such fun games to play, such solid insurance policies. And God has given us all things to enjoy. But there's also a blessing which God has withheld from most of us. Blessed are you when people hate you and exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great. Luke 6, 22 and 23. It seems to me that right now this is our greatest challenge as a people. We have so much comfort, so much peace, so much earthly security, and we need to recognize it as a challenge, as a temptation, as a vulnerability. For if our faithfulness to God really is based on the continuation of his earthly comforts, we're just as lost as this world is. It doesn't necessarily mean that we have to sell everything and give it to the poor, as Jesus told the rich young ruler to do. But it does mean that we have to be willing to. We should put labels on everything that we own. You know, uh, my wife has uh, always been a good labeler. and Pretty much if there's an article of clothing that belongs to our family, she's sewn in a label that says lash. Or, you know, a, a dish that we loan out or our piece of sports equipment. They all say our name on them. You know, we need to put labels on everything we own. Labels which say this. Sometimes she has labels that go into more detail, like this shirt was made in love by Mary Ann Lash. 
you know, especially for, and you know, she, it's sometimes fancier, but we need labels on everything we own, everything we might be tempted to look to, which say this is a gift from Jesus Christ and it still belongs to him. And if we would do that and think of everything in our lives in that way, then we can avoid the dangers which come from the kinds of comforts that God has bestowed upon us so graciously, but which make us vulnerable. Let us pray. We thank you for your love for us. We thank you that you have begun a good work in us and that you will not leave it unfinished. We thank you, O Lord, that one day And we don't know when it will be. But we thank you that one day everything in the world will be brought together in Jesus Christ under his authority. And every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. We thank you that you will allow, you have allowed us to be a part of this great work that he is doing. And Lord, we pray that you'd help us to live our lives today in the hope of tomorrow, waiting patiently for that great moment which will last for eternity when all things are right and Christ receives the glory that he so deserves and we get to be part of the choir which sings, Worthy is the Lamb. Lord, now we have the privilege of coming to the table to celebrate what the Son of God did for us, the Lamb of God. And we pray, O Lord, that as we partake of his body and blood, that we would be filled with Jesus so that it's no longer us living our lives, but Christ living in us and through us. We pray in his precious name. Amen.